to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, this morning. And let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask you now to feed us out of your word. What is before us is so familiar, but we pray, Lord, that we might not despise it for its familiarity, but rather, Lord, rejoice in how familiar this message is to us. Bless it to our hearts for Christ's sake and use it to prepare us to come to his table. We ask it in his name. Amen. The world's full of quotes that have been taken out of context, and consequently they're either misunderstood or they're misapplied. Sometimes the quotes are simply misquoted, that is, they become a part of the conversation of the culture, but are not actually what was originally said by the individual who supposedly said the thing. Um, Machiavelli, for example, Prince Machiavelli. Uh, was famous for having said the ends justifies the means. But actually, Prince Machiavelli never said those words. Uh, What he did say is that one must consider the final result. And even those words have to be put in the larger context to come up with that pithy quote that really doesn't exist from him. It's what he meant, but it's not what he said. And uh, at least it never came from the mouth or the pen of the prince. And there's still another category of so-called quotes, ones which were never said at all by the people that they are habitually attributed to. For example, the astronaut Jim Lovell never said, Houston, we have a problem. He never spoke those words. Um, Countless people believe he did, and that that's part of the story of what took place uh, in the Apollo story, but the truth is that was a line from the movie, and it didn't have anything to do with the actual events. It just seemed like a good line from the movie, and it was such a good line for the movie that it's actually gotten into people's minds that Jim Lovell said that when he never did. Now, this often happens, this misquoting or misapplying the scripture. It's easily taken out of context, and it's often misquoted. Uh, Just for an example, the Bible never says that the lion shall lie down with the lamb. That's not what the scripture says. And uh, if you have your notes there in front of you, you see what the scripture actually says. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. That's the closest quote you can get to, the lion will lie down with the lamb. And yet you see it on Christmas cards, you see it quoted all the time as part of what the scripture says, and it doesn't actually say that. People also often misquote Paul, saying that money is the root of all evil. That's probably one of the most common misquotes from Paul. That's not what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. We read, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And it's amazing how 
just a little bit of that verse is so often misquoted instead of the whole verse and its implications being considered by individuals. Now, sometimes, even when words are accurately quoted, a great deal of their significance and their sense and their power is lost when they're lifted out of their context. And we've been talking about the extraordinary love of God for his elect, for his people. And certainly one of the most memorable expressions of that love in Scripture is found in the words of John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's probably no better known verse in the New Testament than that verse. And those words are precious in themselves. But it's in their full context that they stand out more clearly and brightly. So if you begin in verse 1 of John chapter 3, you read this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do those signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things that you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen 
that his work has been carried out in God. Now, John 3 and verse 16 is a part of a mild rebuke, as you can see here, of Nicodemus, a rebuke that Jesus gives to Nicodemus, who's supposed to be a spiritual leader among the people of Israel. And this mild rebuke begins in verse 10 after Nicodemus makes it clear that he doesn't understand what it means to be born again. He doesn't understand what Jesus is trying to say. And Jesus answers that question of Nicodemus's, that that trouble he's having trying to grasp what Jesus is saying to him by asking him a question. And Jesus says to him, Are you a teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, you think of your teacher children, any of your teachers. They ask you a question, and they ask you a question like, um, is two plus two? What is two plus two? And you answer four. And then your teacher, or maybe it's your mother or your father, looks at you and says to you, what do you mean two plus two is four? How do you get two things and then bring two other things and add them to it and end up with four? What are you talking about? Now, you might be tempted to say in your mind, at least, what? Are you a teacher at any school or home or institution like heritage, perhaps? Are you a teacher and you don't know these things? You don't know two plus two equals four? And you would say that because you would expect anyone who was a teacher in any school to know something like that, wouldn't you? This is Jesus' point with Nicodemus. What? You don't know this? You don't understand this? And you're a teacher in Israel? And it's a very important one to mark because it tells you that any spiritual leader who taught the scripture among the Jews, which would have been the Old Testament at that time, should have been aware of these things that Jesus is talking about. In other words, the idea of being born again isn't some new thing. It's the old, old gospel. The gospel isn't a strange new concept that Jesus has come to teach, but it's obviously a fundamental part of the revealed will of God throughout the scriptures. And as a student and teacher of the word, Nicodemus ought to have known it. That's what Jesus is saying to him. You should know these things. What, what are you, why are you saying, how can these things be? You should know them. And the thing that has and that is getting in Nicodemus' way is what we call carnal reason. What Jesus is saying seems obscure to Nicodemus because he's trying to make it agree with what he finds reasonable. He's looking at what Jesus is saying and he's thinking about what is reasonable and And you can see how he considers it to be unreasonable when he says, what, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? That doesn't make any sense. It's not reasonable to me. And he's doing that as if his reason was the great standard by which all truth 
truths should be understood and believed. And that's exactly what keeps so many from believing. It has nothing to do with what is true, but everything to do with what they might think is true based on their limited experience and their finite understanding. And they take that limited experience and finite understanding and they make judgments on what God says is true and then they determine whether it's believable or not. And of course in this context, Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? How can these things be? What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense at all to me, to my reasoning to my thinking, to my experience. And he's shutting himself out from the truth by making his own experience and understanding the gold standard by which all truth should be measured. Some of you, I know, are far side fans. That's a bizarre cartoon that was retired some years ago now, but it still remains popular. And in one of the cartoons, Larson, the creator of the series, has his version of a prehistoric human going through an amusement park. And the prehistoric human is in the part of the park that's called Future World. And there are all kinds of displays in Future World. And uh, they're crude displays, of course. And then one of them is a picture of a caveman in uh, Tomorrowland uh, with uh, uh, a match in his hand lighted and a book of matches next to him and saying this is how easy you can get fire all you're going to be able to do is open up a little paper book and strike a match and you'll have fire and of course the idea is to the caveman who's thinking about rubbing two sticks together until he gets fire he looks up at that picture of the 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 match book and he goes oh sure sure that's going to happen that's what tomorrow's going to be like And that's exactly what Nicodemus is doing here. He's looking at what Christ is telling him is the truth. And he's going, oh, sure. How can that be? How can these things be? Because, beloved, no man or woman has any experience with heaven or hell. Is even less able to properly imagine the right view of God and how he would be served a proper view of sin and the ruin it's brought on mankind, when he delves into those things, his ignorance leads him or her to replacing the truth that God declares with tradition and superstition and error because they're saying, I only believe it if it's reasonable to me. I've set up the standard and the standard is my mind, my judgment, my opinion on these things. Well, have you ever seen heaven? No. Have you ever experienced hell? No. But in my judgment, in my experience, it can't be like God tells me it is. Because it just doesn't fit my experience. How can that be? Do you know what it is to have a sacrifice made for your sins? No. I don't understand that. I don't know what it means to be born again. And when she or he or she is confronted with the truth, the response is, oh, sure. Men and women, by nature, underestimate the guilt of sin. It's our nature to do that. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17, the first part of the verse, 
the Lord says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. That's what the Lord says. You have wearied me with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied you? That's the response of the people. The Lord says, you're wearing me out. And they're saying, in what way are we wearying you? What do you mean? Because it's not in their mind, in their heart, in their experience. And the Lord says, in it you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And when you say that, the Lord says, it wearies me. But their response is, what do you mean? How have we wearied you? Not only do they underestimate the character of sin, they judge redemption and its blessings as a thing incredible. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So, these matters of the new birth which Jesus speaks of here they are things that are referenced in the law they are things that are referred to in the Psalms and in the prophets and it would be easy for us if we had the time this morning to demonstrate that this whole idea of a new birth is found throughout the scriptures. And that's why Jesus says this to Nicodemus. You're a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things. They're everywhere throughout the word. So Jesus then moves from asking that question of him. Well, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things. And what is Nicodemus's response? Yeah, no, I don't know them. And then Jesus moves to this. Well, then let me tell you about them on the basis of the authority of who I am. Jesus then states his authority by which he is about to teach the meaning of the scriptures to Nicodemus. And Jesus says to him in verse 11, truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know. So you don't know. You just admitted you don't know, didn't you? Nicodemus, didn't you just say, how can these things be? You don't know, you don't understand them. Well, we are talking about what we do now and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And here I am now from heaven to tell you about what all this means. And you've admitted you don't understand it, you don't know it, and your, your lack of experience is keeping you from confessing it. Well, I'm here to tell you what the story is because I come from heaven and know what is the will of God, being very God of very God. So Jesus says that what he is about to explain to Nicodemus He explains on the authority of his being the son of man, the one who descended from heaven and who now says what he knows and what he has seen. And Nicodemus says a man of God should be ready to believe what's said on the authority of God, the revealer, but his carnal reason stands in the way. 
The understanding of God's will is brought down and revealed to us, beloved, in and by Jesus Christ. No man or woman can know the mind of God except the Lord. And those who the Lord chooses to reveal it to by and through his word and his spirit. I can't know the mind of my spouse. I don't know what's in Bonnie's mind right now. So how can I be an authority on the mind of God based on my experience? I can't be that. I can't know what's in the mind of my neighbor. So how can I expect to know the mind of God and the will of God? That's why it's revealed to us in his word. Now stop and think for a moment about what happens next, because it's very interesting. And let me illustrate it this way. A few years ago, Elder Welch took a trip to Israel. And when he got back, he brought pictures and stories of his adventures, just as we expected. We expected him to bring pictures back from from the Holy Land. We expected him to tell us about his experiences there. But what if he had returned from Jerusalem and just showed you pictures of the Northwest and just talked about what was going on here before he left and after he returned? Wouldn't you find that strange? In your mind, you'd be saying, you've just been to the Holy Land. You're going to tell us about things that that are going on there. And instead, you're telling us about things that are going on here. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. When he says, Nicodemus, I've come down from heaven And I've come to tell you what's actually going on here in your world. He's not telling him what it's like in heaven. He doesn't say, it doesn't tell him, you know, I'm going to explain to you what it sounds like when an angel sings. Or I'm going to tell you what it's like when the saints are all gathered before the throne of God. Now he says, I have come to explain to you what God is doing here and what it means to you and to all men, women, and children. And he immediately goes back several hundred years. I want to explain to you what's important for you right now, and for that we've got to go back several hundred years. And the first thing he does is talk about something that God did in the past that explained what he is doing and intends doing in the future. And you see it there in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus references an event known by every Jew, and especially by every teacher of the people, And he says that just as the brazen serpent was lifted up and those sinful Jews who looked on it in faith were healed from the sting and fatal bite of the serpents among them and lived, so those who will look on Christ when he is lifted up on the cross in faith and preached as the redeemer of men will have not just life but everlasting life. He's taking him back to that scene and saying this explains 
what is about to happen now and what is going to be happening. You might remember the scene. It's in Numbers chapter 21. I'm not going to read it all, but the Israelites were complaining as usual. They were impatient. And the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us into the wilderness to die? There's no water. There's no food. You've given us manna, but we hate that. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, and those serpents bit many of the people, and many of them died. And so then the people said under that threat, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray for the Lord to take this away. And then Moses makes the serpent, the brazen serpent, and it's lifted up, and those who look on it uh, live. Now, Jesus said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up indicating that it was ordered prophetically by the word itself and that it was yet to be fulfilled according to that word. The Son of Man was going to be lifted up. Then comes John 3.16. So what is the lead into John 3.16? It is the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness by Moses. And the picture that that is of Christ coming and being sacrificed for our sins and lifted up to the preaching of the word as the means of men's healing and salvation. So that's the context in which this verse comes. You notice that John 16 begins with the word for. It doesn't stand alone. And that word for makes it clear that it's connected to what was just said. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will be lifted up because God so loved the world. Those who look on him in faith, those who believe that he died to be the payment for their sins, will be healed from the curse of sin and death and have everlasting life because God so loved the world. God sent his son into the world to be the sacrifice of sin because of his love. That's what's being said here. And in the context, we might add, and you should have known this, Nicodemus, as a teacher in Israel. You should have been expecting this. You should have been looking for this. You should have been anticipating this. What should he have been anticipating? The love of God that would provide the Redeemer. That's what he should have been looking for. He should have known the love of God. The love of God had been demonstrated throughout the word of God. And that love made it clear that that God who loves his own was going to send a redeemer for their salvation. But the real weight of this verse is gained by weighing out each part. And we're just going to do that quickly here. Why is the sight of God sending his son into the world such a dramatic witness to his love? It's because the world and all that is in it is justly and rightly under the curse and the consequence of sin and misery. That's why. It is a sight of his love that he sent his son into the world to to redeem men out of it because the world in itself is a ruined world. This world is hurtling toward the return of Christ and the final judgment. 
and the only means of escape from the curse of the law has come into the world because God so loved the world. That's why. So this rescue has come to us because God loves us. Now, God is not in these matters, beloved. Uh, A disinterested bystander who has decided to come to the rescue. It is the rebellion of his loving and holy creation that has brought this judgment on mankind. So you can think of it like this. You see a poor mother with several children being stopped for shoplifting. And you step in, and out of pity and compassion for the woman and concern for the children, you say, look, let her go, and I'll pay for these items. Have that picture in mind? That's not what's going on here. So don't look at this, God sending his son into the world because he loved the world like that. Because that's not the story. No, this is more the scene here. You're a wealthy and well-supplied individual. Remember, Adam was created holy, happy, and wise. Despite your wealth and blessing, you plot against the one who made you holy, happy, and wise. You try to steal from him what belongs to him. You mock him. You refuse to acknowledge him or his goodness, and you choose not to be grateful or thankful to him. Not only that, but you use his name foully. You break all his kindly given laws. You indulge in every vice and make yourself more and more miserable and guilty. And you do it deliberately. And standing under just judgment, bound for eternal punishment because of that sin, you don't care, you don't fight off any twinge of of conscience. I mean, you fight off any twinge of conscience. You resist every appeal to repent and you press on in your rebellion. And the one you offend and the one you despise because he loves you even though you hate him sends his only begotten son to die for you and to pay the penalty for all of that evil born in your heart against him. You were headed for rack and ruin at the hands of Satan and your own sin and the justice of a holy God. But he chose to love you and by that choice loved you so much that he did not let that happen to you. But he sent his own son, the one he delighted in, the one who didn't just bear his likeness, But as John says, we looked on and behold, and we saw his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. He took that son and he brought him and he suffered the sorrows and the rack and the ruin brought on by your sins in your place so that you might have life. Because he so loved you. Because he so loved you.
And what is the result of this loving act? Eternal life for all who believe. And what a life that is. It's not just you're getting by by the skin of your teeth, is it? You who believe this morning, you don't yet know what life is. You haven't really tasted the fullness of life. And that won't come until the day you live this world and this life. And then all that you are in Christ will be completed in you. And in the resurrection, mind and body will be restored. And beloved, you will have a life beyond anything you can even imagine now. Carnal reason looks at that and says, how can these things be? But God says, this is what I've done. I have sent my son because I have so loved you that you might have eternal life. That you might have this life and have it more abundantly. But Jesus isn't finished even here in John 3.16. When when we quote John 3.16, we're not quoting the conclusion of Jesus' statement at all. We're lifting a sentence really out of the middle of a statement and leaving the context behind. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that you should never quote John 3.16 by itself. So let's make that clear. Let me repeat that so we'll make sure we all understand. I'm not saying you should never quote John 3.16 by itself. I'm not saying that. You should. But have in mind as you do, and especially as you're sharing it with others, the fact that it's not just one sentence, but it's a sentence in a paragraph full of important and vital context. Just look at what Jesus says next in verse 17. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And, you know, people look at that, and again, out of context, it says something different than what it says. Oh, good, Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Why didn't he come to condemn you? Because you were condemned already. That's what Jesus says. He didn't come in the incarnation to condemn because we were already condemned. That part was already sealed and satisfied. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Savior immediately adds to John 3.16 that this is what God did out of love. And he adds this because the next question is, so what are you doing? What are you doing? God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. It's already condemned. He sent his son to those who would be believing, so that those who would be believing might be saved and have everlasting life. If you're not believing, you're already condemned, judged, and sentenced to death. Wait a minute, how can that be? Carnal reason. The Lord has already said, Jesus already said, I'm coming to tell you how it is, and this is how it is. The stinging bite of death that is in sin has already poisoned you. But God in love has sent his son to be believed in by all who would be saved. 
Whoever is believing in him is not condemned, already being sentenced and condemned in Jesus, who offered himself as the payment for your sins. So the question is, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, is how do you sit here today? Are you believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, then you know that love which sent him down to die for you. And when you partake of these elements this morning, you're taking up the memorial of God's extraordinary love for you. Or are you daring to make your assessment of eternal things this morning the standard by which all truth should be judged? Your assessment of those things. If so, you're making judgment about things that are way outside of your understanding and experience. And yet you're making that the standard of your judgment? You wouldn't do that in anything else, would you? You go to the doctor, the doctor says you need an operation, and say, no, no, I've thought about this, and I don't think that's true. I'm not doing that. No, and the doctor does the examination, you're trusting them. You might get a second opinion, but if the second opinion is the same, you're not going to lean to your own understanding in that matter. So why do it with these matters concerning the soul and everlasting life? There is one who has come from the eternal heavens who is one with the Father. And he's the one that tells you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is the message to those who are condemned already. Those who are condemned already are called out of that condemnation And to look on the love of God and how that love operated to send his son to be the sin bearer in your behalf and to give you the promise of life. If you believe that this morning, then we take up these elements as tokens of his love for us. And that's the way we should receive them and we should be blessed in receiving them. If that's not where you are, this is the call to abandon carnal reason. And to put your faith and trust in the word of Jesus Christ, who came from heaven, to bear testimony to this fact that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful statement of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you'll bless it to our hearts today. We pray, Father, that as we who uh, believe go to the table, that we might receive this blood of the grape and this broken bread as the symbols and tokens of your love for us through the Lord Jesus Christ and receive them with thanks and gratitude. And, Lord, rejoice in it. And, Lord, if there's anyone here in our midst who has not done so, We pray, Lord, that even now they would see that this is the day in which the gospel is being preached to them, that they would abandon their carnal reason, that, Lord, you would give them the victory over it, and let them, Lord, believe by faith the word of the living God. 
Please, Father, be merciful in our midst today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.